Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where, sometimes, it's the kids who just don't understand. Book number 52, White Lies. Will Jennifer despise John Pfeiffer when she finds out the truth? Hello, welcome back to Sweet Valley Diaries, everybody. I, of course, am your host, Marissa Flaxbart, and I am very excited today to be joined by Daniel Okobi. Hello, Daniel. Hey. Would you care to give a longer introduction of yourself than that? I didn't uh, I didn't like do a carefully researched intro of Daniel, but Yeah, no, I, I'm uh kind of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a neurologist and I am also a scientist. I work in a neuroscience lab. Um, I, I have never read a Sweet Valley High book before. Memories are of Babysitter's Club's books that my sisters read. Oh, but, I read uh, those a lot, I, I just, too, when I was growing up. I, I remember seeing these books in the library, and there were so many of them, and they all had different colors, but I, I just never understood why people were, were doing this to themselves. <laughs> Well, I don't know that you understand any better now having read the book, but... I, I, I think I understand a little bit. Oh, that's good to hear. And yeah. I'm sure the in, listeners... In the world before Gossip Girl, there, there had to be something. This is an excellent point, you know? And eventually, the Sweet Valley High series would go on to become a television series of its own. But uh, the books, I wish they were still in the library. That would be really helpful to me to be able to just tell my guest readers to like, just go check it out from the local library. But wait, were they taken out of libraries? Were they canceled? <laughs> so I don't know if it's anything as quite as like aggressive as them being canceled, but you know, libraries like books sort of, you know, they get taken out of circulation, right? Like when people aren't reading them anymore. And I have heard tell okay. of some of some people being able to find them in libraries, but you can get yeah. eBooks of the first 10 Sweet Valley High novels from the Los Angeles public library system. And after that, your SOL. Yeah. It's interesting because of Los Angeles. This is like a weird kind of fantastical place that is not in Los Angeles, but it's like in California somewhere, maybe close ish to Los Angeles. So interesting that they've already kind of fallen out of interest (laughs) in the area that they kind of report to be around. Well, I wonder if maybe they are or were less interesting to actual Californian kids. Because I hear a lot from people who read the books, and I think I was one of these, you know, reading a version of these books for younger girls growing up, you do sort of have this fantasy of California and what it's going to be like that would probably be less alluring if you actually lived here or grew up here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, we can probably get into where and when this is supposed to be as this conversation continues to unfold because <laughs> i have questions okay well we can try to answer your question but so this book is called white lies um i wish that i don't know it was maybe a little bit juicier in terms of what the lies are but i guess there is a big lie at the core but um this is the first in a little run of what we here on sweet valley diaries like to call um the parade of randos there's a series of books about characters who are not really main characters. And we have in this book, John Pfeiffer, who is a recurring character, but he's never had his own book. John Pfeiffer spelled his name with not the number of F's I expected. So that was a clue to 
looking into this guy. Uh, but yeah, he just seems to be at the newspaper. And it's a little weird because there seems to already be an established relationship between Elizabeth and John. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we work together. And I'm like, huh. Okay. Yeah, the book Maybe actually really cool friends. Well, the book actually describes them as being really close friends because they've worked on the newspaper for so long. But I got to that and I was like, I feel like this is a little revisionist history because uh, John Pfeiffer. I mean, he's been a background character for all these books, but I would never have described him as like a good friend of Elizabeth's. But that's just a little bit of extra context for you, Daniel. Would you have described Enid Rollins as a good friend of Elizabeth's? Yes. Her Enid best friend is... who appears three yes. quarters through the book? <laughs> yeah, we got to the end of the book and suddenly it's like, here's Enid Rollins. She's She's got some idea about some charity thing she wants Elizabeth to do. I, there's definitely, I would almost call it subtext of this entire book, that it's about Elizabeth Wakefield and how it's hard for her to like play the role that she plays within the Sweet Valley High ecosystem. Do you know what I mean? Like she's the book is constantly returning to Elizabeth just to talk about how, how hard it is for her to be an advice giver or whether she feels like she gave the right advice or the wrong advice. Okay. Yeah. So the, the advice giver role, I think it's explicitly stated towards the end. I thought that she kind of had a a role of being a, a little bit of a drip. Like, you know, like the more responsible version of oil to her, her twin. So <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> to find out that her role is to give advice because it starts out saying that she um, writes a gossip column um, and then there's no gossip column, no engagement with the fact that she's allegedly kind of a columnist. Anyway, that's in the true. Book. Well, and the, and the very first... It's like, this is a this is a really gossipy thing that's going on. And I'm like, huh, didn't they be reporting on this? That's mm-hmm. true. Oh, that would have made so much sense for the uh thrust of the plot of this book, which gladiators, I swear oh. we will get to in a second. Yeah, it it would have been it would have made perfect sense for them to talk about like, oh, um, in the vernacular of this Eisenier's column, it would be like JM and RA are considering escaping the sunny shores of California for a, a more eastern locale. You know, that would have been the way that Eisenhower's is written. But yeah, you're right. It never comes back to her gossip column. It's just a setup for like why Elizabeth and John know each other. And also, a lot of times uh, guests will come on and they'll bring up how strange it is that Elizabeth writes for a gossip column. And this book starts right off the bat by letting us know that, yeah, Eyes and Ears was never spiteful or malicious. Elizabeth always kept it lighthearted, and as a rule, most people were thrilled to be featured in it. It is it is kind of a like a missed opportunity <laughs> as a concept. Yeah. I mean, but but in, in, in her role, is she more not really like it? Is, is there an actual kind of like ask Elizabeth angle to how she writes the column where... She's kind of like an Ann Landers where she gives advice. Is that more of what's going on with her column? No, I think that would be a great <laughs> idea for Elizabeth. Really, that would make more sense in terms of her character. But no, it's really like, in fact, it's supposed to be anonymous. It's just an open secret that Elizabeth writes this column. It's something that comes up right at the very beginning of the series. It's some, an event that happens is that Elizabeth gets outed as the person who writes the gossip column for the newspaper, which was supposed to be a secret. Um, I see. So it's very much this, like the upcoming season of Bridgerton, <laughs> where we yeah, know who, who who is the top of the town. Absolutely, and and honestly, Elizabeth Column is very much like in in Bridgerton. Um, what's her name? Uh, Lady Whistledown. 
Lady Whistledown. That's right. And it's interesting that you mentioned Elizabeth as like a drip because, uh, you know, the book definitely is really trying to hammer home the contrast between the twins from the very beginning. Uh, you know, there's a line I, I took note of right on page two, um, describing Jessica as tempestuous and exciting, a self-centered five foot six whirlwind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually highlighted that too. Um, she's like a slightly taller than average whirlwind. <laughs> <laughs> we can get into the beauty standards and all that stuff too. Um, one, one question I also had about that, um, on the previous page was, you know, it, Highlights, especially at the beginning, how they are definitely identical twins. Elizabeth asked her twin or Jessica thought about her twin. I'm like, okay. Um, but their actual twinness has a, maybe a flaw to it, right? So on page two, it talks about how there's like identical tim- dimples in the left cheek. They were mirror images. But if you were looking in a mirror... That would actually be on your right cheek, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is some serious detective work that you've done here. I, it, that's a great question. Like, I think maybe the problem is in the description of them as mirror images, you know? Because well, I mean, I there think- are mirror images a little bit in um, maybe, it's not exactly like a mirror image, but it, in that they have complementary personal characteristics, uh, which probably animates a lot of conflict um, and some resolution throughout the series, I suspect. That is definitely the uh, heart and soul of the series in general, especially the books that are not about the randos of Sweet Valley High, (laughs) of which this is not one. Wait, Rick is a rando? Well, no, Rick actually appears. It's funny that you should mention Rick specifically. So, Gladiators, we're talking about Rick Andover, which if longtime listeners are already, like, clutching their pearls, Rick Andover, he is the one who in the very first book... Uh, causes trouble for Jessica and Elizabeth. and uh, But this time, Rick Andover is dating a sophomore named Jennifer Mitchell, who this is the first we've really heard of her. And John Pfeiffer is like a neighbor, I got the sense, to, to Jennifer Mitchell. And he is really upset about the fact that Jennifer is interested in Rick because everybody knows that Rick is bad news. Give me a big... Peter Parker vibes. Really? Kind-hearted neighbor who actually has a crush on. Oh, John Pfeiffer is giving you Peter Parker vibes. I thought you meant Rick Andover was giving you Peter Parker vibes. Rick Andover, uh, we can get into a little later, but. uh, (laughs) Yeah, well, no, we can talk about Rick. Because I uh, yeah. I am curious on your, your your thoughts on Rick. He he shows up in this book, and then we actually don't get very much Rick. It's all just talking about Rick. We're not really seeing that much Rick in this book. There's a certain kind of ambiguity, word cloud about Rick. I don't think Rick says anything. <laughs> yeah, um, he's, but, he's gossiped about. Yeah, right before the beginning of chapter two, it says, who knows, maybe she'll just open her eyes one day and realize Rick's a phony. And I'm like, do people use the word phony? Like, <laughs> I thought that was just a catch from the rye kind of thing. Well, in Sweet Valley, they do. But it also did remind me of an, another maybe infamous Rick um, for the like 10 people who have watched the movie Metropolitan. There's a character named Rick Von Soniker. And I mean, this is a kind of gossip girl, uh, kind of rich New York set. Um, but he's supposed to be tall, handsome, a bad boy. Um, and 
it's a very kind of similar description. And he, he does things that, um, you know, ruin characters uh, in the course of the movie. And I'm like, huh, maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a Rick kind of archetype that we're driving into, not necessarily, you know, thinking of other Ricks that have wronged us in the past, like, Tricky Dick. Um, never usually refer to it like uh, Nixon. Um, also from California. <laughs> See, so you're talking about Metropolitan, the groundbreaking silent film? Oh, no, not Metropolitan, the groundbreaking oh, okay. silent film. <laughs> Metropolitan, the um, somewhat highfalutin, but also a little trashy, uh, Witt Stillman indie from 1990. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I am thinking of a movie called Met- Metropolis. Oh yeah, Metropolis. The, the yeah, I but I was really excited. Regardless of whether you're talking about Whit Stillman or classic cinema, this is the value. See, this is why I knew you were going to be just a just a really high quality guest, Daniel, because you're bringing all the references. We've got Gilmore Girls, we've got uh, Bridgerton, and Catcher in the Rye, like Gladiators. I hope you're counting them up. Like this is this is good content for you. <laughs> but Metropolitan. Yes. Uh, okay, I looked it up. It's a 1990 American romantic comedy. And I want to watch it. Oh, yeah. It's uh, definitely worth watching. Entertaining. You referenced in passing um, something that John and Elizabeth are talking about. So John, at the very beginning of the book, brings to Elizabeth his concerns about this new relationship. And Jennifer, I guess, has been confiding to John about her relationship with Rick, which is painful for John, mostly because he has a huge crush on Jennifer. And secondarily... Uh, because Rick sucks. So it's like, even if, and, and that's kind of clouding John's judgment a little bit. It's like, am I worried about Jennifer? There. Sucks is yeah. like really, it's like a really kind of almost a curse word back in the eighties. You don't Ooh, say that. Well. Unless you're Bart Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're allowed to curse uh, here on Sea Valley Diaries. I have that, pa- that passage marked. So I'm going to go ahead and read that to give the listeners a little bit of a deeper context here. Okay. I mean, I don't get it, he exploded suddenly. How can she like the guy? He's bad news and a total loser. John's green eyes were filled with hurt and anger, and he smacked his pencil down on the desk vehemently. Elizabeth hazarded a guess. Well, maybe she thinks she can help him. She gave John a doubtful look. I mean, I know some girls think they can change a guy. You know, reform him. He'll never change, John scoffed. Shrugging, Elizabeth added, I'm not saying I would feel that way, but I know that's attractive sometimes. John curled his lip. That's sick. His tone wasn't as harsh as his words, however. He sounded more upset and sad than outraged. I don't think I acted that right for John. I guess it's more like, that's sick. Elizabeth met his eyes again and shook her head helplessly. I don't know what else to tell you. It's just wrong. That's all I'm saying. And it burns me up that she can't see what he's really like, John continued. He ran one hand through his wavy hair and sighed. She wasn't so naive. He'd never get away with it, you know? Why did she have to choose him for a first boyfriend? Which, that's interesting, too. First boyfriend. Uh, Jennifer. Oh, she's like 15. Anyway. I wish I could just straighten her out, that's all. Well, it doesn't sound like she wants to be straightened out, Elizabeth said gently. Which, thank you, Elizabeth. Important detail. But... Who knows, maybe she'll just open her eyes one day and realize Rick's a phony. And when she opens her eyes, she'll also see you, she added with a coaxing smile. <laughs> so that's the, um, that's where Elizabeth is coming from. That's John's problem. And Rick is bad news. Yeah, I know. I mean, and sure, to, to think about the, the meta structure, 
opens with maybe she'll realize that he's a phony um, and then, you know, open her eyes and see you. And then we look at the inverse of that towards the end of the book in the last chapter. <laughs> see, I was going to say it's a little bit of foreshadowing, but uh, you're right. Yeah. It is it, it the way that it actually unfolds is a little, a little different. So I guess, you know, to continue with the shade, um, when I was reading this, obviously I don't have too much background on who these people are, but and it says, you know, Elizabeth said, I'm not saying I would feel that way, but I know that's attractive sometimes. I immediately had already been thinking about maybe this triangle with Elizabeth, Jeffrey, and John, because Jeffrey like barely comes in um, as a bot person in the Elizabeth's book. boyfriend, Jeffrey and, French. <laughs> Elizabeth's yes. Elizabeth's boyfriend, Jeffrey, <laughs> is much less of a character than John, her work friend, uh, that you know. We start off the, uh, the almost in medias res uh, kind of first page saying Elizabeth and John were like sitting in a car together. And it's like almost scandalous, but they're like stalking out a reporting mission, maybe, except they don't actually report this. They're just kind of like interested in gossip. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I thought about that and I was like, huh, is there, is there something uh, in, in the Elizabeth and John relationship? Does Elizabeth say that? She's saying that she doesn't want to change John, uh, even though, you know, John is thinking uh, about whether uh, Jennifer wants to be changed or anything like that. Well, that's really interesting. I think that that's definitely, I would say that that's a side effect of reading the books as individual, an individual volume, like out of context, which many young readers would have done. Um, because of the structure of this podcast, I know that the previous book was kind of like all about Jeffrey. It was very Jeffrey heavy. So this is probably more just a factor of like, okay, we get it. Like the kids don't need a whole nother book about Jeffrey. But, uh, yeah, there's John and, John and Elizabeth spend a lot of time together and, Jeffrey and Elizabeth barely talk to each other in this book, which is kind of weird. Is there stuff between jo Jeffrey and Elizabeth, though? Is there something there? Because it just seemed way too passive um, for <laughs> you know, an actual relationship. I don't know, man. I mean, it's worth it's worth wondering. They have their chemistry when they're together. I know this book spends a lot more time talking about another Wakefield twin and her relationship. That's the whole subplot uh with Jessica and her boyfriend, AJ, which is an interesting counterpoint in a way that I, I don't know that I noticed at first, but just literally just reading the passage that I, that I just read, I noticed that when Elizabeth talks about how some girls think they can change a guy, that that's exactly what's happening in Jessica's relationship. Although she's not trying to change a bad boy into a, into a, a reformed, you know, gentleman. She's actually, Jessica at one point laments the fact that AJ is so conscientious. Like those are her exact words. She just thinks that she can change him and should change him to do whatever it is that she wants. Yeah, it's chapter two. <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit weird. It starts to, later on, it, it mentions that AJ thought that he saw something in Jessica's quietness and stuff like that. And I'm like, when would you ever have gotten that idea about Jessica unless you mistook her for her twin? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, funny you should mention that because that's essentially what happened when, uh, when Jessica and AJ got together is that Jessica pretended to be 
um, studious and serious for a while to get his attention. And then she took it so far that she was actually very boring and overly conscientious. And AJ was like, I'm not having any fun. <laughs> and then Jessica had to come clean. But there's definitely a growing tension. Um, Jessica is not a natural uh, monogamist. And uh, oh, yeah. at, at one point, this book, uh, I thought it was funny, it gets very specific. Well, actually, vaguely specific. On page five, uh, Elizabeth is looking at Jessica and AJ and thinking, they had been together for some weeks. A record for Jessica, Elizabeth reflected. Um, and I just yeah, thought I the vagueness <laughs> the vagueness of that sentence really spoke volumes. Because whatever amount of time some weeks means... It doesn't matter. It's a record for Jessica. <laughs> like more than more than two weeks or whatever sure. it might and be is a record. The scope of this particular novel seems to be maybe two weeks. Um, yeah. Rick Andover um, is cited and arrested. Eventually. Yeah. Well, let's actually let's talk about it. Let's describe yeah. it. Like we got to we got to paint the picture for the listeners. The One of the specific things that John is freaked out about is that. Um, Rick Andover, he's like a musician. He works in a place called the Mellow Music Shop. This is new information, by the way, in this book. He, there's some funny talk about how he auditioned for the Droids once, Sweet Valley Hyrus Rock Band. Uh, yes. Um, there, there was some judgment about, uh, his real motivations for being in the Droids. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like a, he was just like a, a lazy guy who wanted all the glory and didn't want to put in any of the work, that kind of thing. That's something that Dana Larson of the droids is complaining. Some of the glory, the potential to like get with girls. Surely. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, uh, Jennifer Mitchell is an excellent keyboard player, pianist. That's something that they have in common. And John finds out that Rick has convinced this 15-year-old girl. I don't know how old Rick is. Do you have any idea how old? I mean, he's a dropout, but I don't know. Were they specific about how, like what age well, did you think he was? Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say because um, it did mention that, that Jennifer is 15 and that she's a sophomore. Rick uh, seems like he's probably older. Um, but like, because he's not a student at the high school, it's hard to say whether he's like, is he 17? Is he 18? Or is he like a guy who dropped out of high school and is still hanging around the town like three, four years later? I don't know. But regardless, he's an older boy. Maybe, maybe we should know. (laughs) I don't, I don't know exactly how the legal evolution behind statutory rape works. Oh, Daniel, we could write a whole book. Being above 18. (laughs) In Sweet Valley High, there's no such thing as statutory <laughs> rape. <laughs> okay. I, I uh, um, please don't put that on a T-shirt, everybody. But oh, it seems like it's just not, it's just not a concern. Um, uh, so now we know it's not in libraries anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you may be onto something there. Uh, but regardless, this is the thing. They're gonna, they're not just, she's gonna run away with Rick to New York City and they're gonna become famous musicians together. This is the level at which Jennifer Mitchell is operating. And Rick, you know, that's how mature they are. So that's their plan. I mean, this is like New York City of the 80s? Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, 1989. They also mentioned running away to Los Angeles, but then I guess they settled in New York City. Yeah, it would have made a lot of sense for them to go to Los Angeles, which is like 40 miles away or something. Um, Yeah, later on, this is a little bit of an aside, sorry, but Jessica 
is talking about what a great vacation spot would be. And she says going to someplace like Los Angeles or New York would be a great place because you could go shopping. And I was like, you go to Los Angeles, like these characters go to Los Angeles all the time in these books. Like they go to a Lakers game. Like, I don't know why she's so excited about going to Los Angeles, but whatever. That's weird. I live in Los Angeles now, but I don't think of Los Angeles as a destination for shopping. Yeah. Maybe Beverly Hills. Yeah, um, Beverly Hills. That's pretty much it. Pretty woman's depiction. But like, yeah. you know, if they went to a Lakers game, back then Lakers played in the forum in Inglewood. I don't think people were even though Inglewood does have like a kind of nice downtown where there is some shopping, I don't think people are going there to shop. I don't think people were going to downtown LA because that wasn't I don't thing. think in nineteen eighty nine I don't think that the uh, denizens of Sweet Valley were heading up to Inglewood to go shopping after a Lakers game. That's just. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, but, but they did mention that, um, and you know, this is part of the Rick uh, mystique, but he tried to line up something with an agent and it didn't work. And this was in Los Angeles. Uh, and then he kind of just like bobbed it off. And I guess that could be one reason why Los Angeles is not so, on the list of places to go. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I had forgotten about that. I'm sure you're right. Because Rick, it seems like Rick's attitude is kind of like, these people don't get it. Like, screw these people. Like, they don't understand my art is like kind of the argument he's using. And Jennifer is very much sold on this, right? Like, she does think that Rick is misunderstood, that he's, you know, he's had a hard go of life and people just aren't giving him a chance. And, you know, it's this thing of like, I'm the only one that understands him and he's different when he's with me. Like I'm, that's what Jennifer's going for. Now, meanwhile, Jennifer's parents are, are highly disapproving of her relationship with Rick and it's causing a rift in their relationship. Not, not Jennifer's and Rick's, but Jennifer and her parents for the first time. And her father is a lawyer who like represents like juvenile hall cases or something like that. Like he specifically works with like, young criminal reform area so he like young, it's really <laughs> yeah oh, <man>. essentially <laughs> so yeah. it's really kind of a a big fuck you and a dad <laughs> to be dating rick at all and then to not well, take his yeah, advice that's, about that's it that's the first but. thing i picked up actually i was like uh well it sounds like rick is exactly the opposite of what her parents want and that is the primary motivator for her interest in him <laughs> Yeah, I think you might be right, because nothing else about it really makes that much sense. So there's a lot of uh, quick hangouts and like discussions that happen in this book at the Dairy Burger. And on one such evening at the Dairy Burger, John spots Rick Andover and decides that that to follow him because he is convinced that like this is going to be the night that they're going to try to run away. And Elizabeth is there, too, and decides to go with John. They're going to follow Rick to see what he's doing. I'm not exactly sure what their plan is. Yeah. You know, when I, when I read the description of the Dairy Burger, I was like, when is this? Because this seems very much like a, a like, Fonzie and Potsy situation, which is like the happy days in the 70s, retelling what it was like to be in the 50s. <laughs> as you started talking about like what well, I was thinking what I might say to respond to whatever it is that you observed about the dairy burger immediately my head went to happy days because happy days of course is like uh what like 70s 80s sitcom about the 50s so 
it is that. I think that's exactly what it is. It's the same way it, as in Saved by the Bell. They're, you know, always talking about the like, mess, yeah. yeah, or like they're talking about Elvis or also the Beach Boys. You know, it's like a certain like who was writing the series. <laughs> so yeah, their yeah, idea that's, of that's definitely true. Of what teens are into. You you mentioned Elvis, and uh, you know I I highlighted this is mentioned in chapter one how <laughs> you know he's the hottest thing to hit music since Elvis Presley, and it's like that's I mean even in the eighties that's kind of dated in a sense. Like Elvis yeah. had been this fat guy who died. <laughs> um, I mean, this like, is a a world where like new edition exists. Like why? I'll, yeah. Like I guess. Like no, not in. No, no. I just mean like in okay. 1989. <laughs> sure. I guess sure, sure. I don't know. Like it is a funny thing to go back and pick Elvis, but I guess it is a statement about how hot Rick thinks he is in terms of as a yeah. musician. So Elizabeth and John follow Rick, and boy, do they ever see something! They catch him going into his place of employment, uh, the Mellow Music Shop. And leaving with a bunch of money and a Fender Stratocaster guitar, which I thought oh, was a nice detail. Did they actually see him leave with the money? They definitely saw they, him, like, kind of swipe the guitar. Yeah, I don't know how they would possibly see him have money. Like, unless he's just, like, carrying giant stacks of cash in his hand. Um, I mean, and it kind of – he must have just looked really shady because I don't know why they knew – they just knew that he was robbing the place. I guess they know he's a bad guy. But – um john wants to call the cops right away but elizabeth is like no let's call the guy who owns the store and tell him what we saw and he can decide what he wants to do taking responsibility yeah yeah (laughs) which is actually fine um that that should de-escalate things but um yeah well and it's like just in case rick's not robbing the place and this is something that was somehow sanctioned by the store yeah it's interesting the employer who knows rick (laughs) <laughs> immediately narks. <laughs> yeah, he does call the cops. And that's when things really hit, really hit the fan. Things? No, shit is what hits the fan. That's when shit really hits the fan. Uh, because uh, John was right. This is the night that Rick and Jennifer were going to run away to New York together. I guess in their car, in Rick's car. Rick famously drives a... Uh, Camaro? Rick famously drives a Camaro. Jennifer is all packed. <laughs> yeah, well, so let me read this scene. So Jennifer is sitting in her car, her mother's car. She's left a note for her mother, which I thought was going to come back to bite her, but apparently she cleans up after herself. But she leaves a note for her mother saying where she has left the car. Uh, and she's waiting for Rick and waiting for him. And, you know, we see her think back about like how she felt when Rick, you know, called her to say that tonight was the night and how she says that she says at the end of the phone call, I love you to Rick. And then the book tells us that Rick had already hung up at that point. (laughs) It's it's painting a picture. So here we are. This is page 50. She looked around her room triumphantly, glad it was the last time she would be in it for a long time, maybe even forever. When she came back to Sweet Valley, she would be a star, and everyone, especially her father, would have to eat their words about Rick. So all she had to do was wait until 11.30 and her new life would start. But now it was past midnight, and there was no doubt in Jennifer's mind she had gotten the time right. 
She was in the right place at the right time, but Rick wasn't. In an agony of worry, she looked through the back window again, checking the dark, empty streets for any sign of him. In the back seat, her suitcase and her keyboard were a painful reminder of the cross-country trip that was supposed to have started that evening. What happened? She pleaded in the darkness. Where are you? So poor Jennifer, she sits there until like 2 a.m. and finally goes home. It's like Bizarre Cinderella. <laughs> Ooh, yes, she is exactly like Bizarro Cinderella. If you're thinking about things that are happening in the opposite way to what you would expect, they're, they're basically trying to do an inverse Jack Kerouac. Like who leaves the magic of California to go east? <laughs> to like the uh you know at least for for this audience like crime ridden and like kind of dark and um expensive and grabby and like full of graffiti subway system of new york of the 80s it's funny to think like what it must be like to be like a kid growing up in california and not having that sort of daydream of of moving to california <laughs> I know not everybody has that, but... Even without having the daydream of moving to California, she said that she would be a star. And I'm like, well, isn't the easier route to be a star just to go to Hollywood? Yeah, you got to (laughs) work your connections, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Now she's going to uproot and start all over again just because Rick knows a guy? Like, I bet your dad has some friends. Your lawyer dad knows some people who could, like, hook you up with some people. Just, like, through work connections. It's that you're right. It's a bad choice on Jennifer's part all around. And Jennifer, oh, Jennifer's bad decision making has just begun. Because now, the next day, she decides that someone, when she hears, she hears very early in the morning, because her dad is a lawyer in this realm of, uh, you know, young hooligan criminals. And she hears very early, he gets a call, she finds out that Rick was arrested for stealing and she immediately decides that he was framed a because why would (laughs) why would rick ever do something like that and b she decides that the person that framed her was obviously her dad and she even like invents her own kind of she she revises her memory of the phone call do you remember that detail uh, yeah, that, that's not an uncommon thing to happen. Uh, yeah, but she decides, she convinces herself, like somebody, that she had heard a click on the line the night before, and it must yeah. have been her dad listening in, and he must this have... This is a couple of pages into chapter six. Uh, as the idea took shape in her mind, Jennifer thought she remembered the click of another phone extension being replaced before she had hung up the phone. In an in instant, she was absolutely sure that her father had listened in. It's all her father's fault. Yeah. And she doesn't confront him. She just, and then she goes straight to, I hate you. How could you do this to me? You've ruined my life. Like that's That's pretty realistic to teenage. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Uh, Doesn't make it any more (laughs) rational, but it is very realistic. It's actually kind of interesting, right? Is um, this is a a big trend in how you tell stories uh, of, young people there's only one phone line and very easy for the one phone line with multiple handsets to be tapped in on and that's like you know count of many a hilarious uh plot twist Mm -hmm. these days you know if she has a cell phone because her dad's a lawyer and that just doesn't happen 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's such a good point. This is a very like of its time or of, you know, most of the 20th century. This this could have applied. But yeah, so sh- this is this is the story she convinces herself of. And it, yeah, it couldn't happen that way now. I was a little confused about what it was that she imagined had happened. Like, did she think that her dad, like, does she believe that Rick did the stealing and her dad caught him? Or she does she think Rick was fully framed and he just, like, made up the story to get him arrested? I'm not sure what she even really thinks her dad did. Uh, yeah, it's not not well described or defined. It's more that her dad listened in, heard that they planned to do something, and then maybe got him arrested with the pretext, maybe planted evidence, you know, things that upstanding lawyers do, I guess. <laughs> um, but she, she, she didn't really think through exactly what happened. She just knew that her dad must have been the fount of all. Yeah, I'm not sure it was even clear in her own mind. It's very clear that, like, Jennifer is distraught over what's happened with Rick. It's really, she was so in love with him. And it's, uh, of course, everybody's gossiping because everybody knew that Rick and Jennifer were together. So as soon as the news breaks. You know who's not gossiping, though? Who? The people who who reported the story or who (laughs) instigated the story. Let's not say reported the story. The gossip um, reporter and the other the other guy who is responsible for this whole thing, John Pfeiffer, he is very responsibly not bringing it up to Jennifer, uh, judiciously, you might say. And she takes that as a real, like, th- you know, thank God, you know, the one person who's not just grilling me about this. Like, he understands understands how sensitive this is. And he just wants to be my friend. He's not judging me, you know, so she starts talking to John a lot about what's going on. And John starts to understand real quickly that Jennifer hates uh, whoever did this to her Rick. And she, that she thinks it is her dad who has done it. Yeah. So she hates her dad now and she's not talking to her dad. But also they're spending like a decent amount of time together. Um. (laughs) Oh yeah. They're hanging out a lot. He's and I don't think she her. even goes to visit Rick in the in jail. Yeah. We never get that scene. I, that would have been cool. I think that would have been a fun well, scene. Well, interestingly, it seems like her mother's prediction or stern order that she would never see Rick again has been coming true. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly enough, even though she wouldn't have reason to try to follow the orders of her parents. Yeah, and spoiler alert, by the end of the book, Jennifer has has started to forget what Rick's face looks like. <laughs> Because she doesn't have the cover of the book to look at. No, that's not Rick. That's John, man. That's John? It's gotta be. He's too nice looking. Why would John um, be supporting... Oh, okay. That's just John supporting Jennifer? I think so. Well, we're talking about it, so let's talk about it. (laughs) Gladiators, the cover of this book has a young woman who looks a lot like the Wakefield twins, by the way. Like, not a huge divergence in uh, depiction, and she is very she straight sad. blonde hair, unlike the yeah. wavy blonde, blonde hair. hair. Yeah, <laughs> and she's got bangs. Um, the I looked twins at this have, and have... thought of uh, I thought of the depiction of uh, Princess Diana in the most recent season of The Crown, <laughs> and I'm like, this is this is going for the period. Yeah, but she looks very sad, and she is resting her head on the sort of shoulder slash chest of a young man who we have never seen before. Um, who actually looks kind of like a teenager, impressively. These these book covers, the, the actors usually look more like they're in their 30s. Um, but I could believe this kid is a teenager. You mean like Beverly Hills actors? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
And uh, he's he's just sadly he's worn a, a black t-shirt. He's got short brown hair. He's a cute guy. This John Pfeiffer. We've never. I assume it's John Pfeiffer. I mean, we've never seen John Pfeiffer or Rick Andover before. But I just feel like Rick. He would be edgier than this guy. What do we know about Rick's appearance besides dark hair and sinister and furtive, which is on the first page? I feel like he wears a leather jacket a lot. Oh, yeah? Um, Yeah. So he's like the bad boy version of Fonzie because when Fonzie aired, they were like, he's too cool, so people are going to like him, so you're going to soften him up a bit. He's not like... Bully. Yeah, I mean, girls like Rick Andover until he wrongs them, so that's something. But he's he's definitely is an asshole. So is he a uh, smart person or is he just kind of sly and sinister? Which you know, I mean, that's a great question. Rick is very good at at manipulating young women, so there's a certain kind of intelligence that goes along with that, I guess. he dropped out of high school, which doesn't, I mean, you could be a, a very intelligent person and drop out of high school for all sorts of reasons. Oh, yeah, but I don't it's think more common back then, actually. Yeah? Dropping out of high yeah. school or being intelligent? Yeah, dropping, out, dropping of out of high school. school. Uh, I think the graduation rate has gone up about 20%, 20 percentage points since back in the 80s. Well, he's definitely not the only character in Sweet Valley, California, who has dropped out of the high school. Like, there have been several characters. That, that comes up occasionally. And there was even a character who... She was, uh, she almost, it was, she almost, like, she tried to go back and she was so, like, shunned for having left in the first place that it was hard for her to go back. So, uh, but she shamefully very... got a GED. <laughs> no, she, she finished. She, 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 okay. I mean, nobody finishes high school in Sweet Valley. It's junior year forever, but, uh, she, okay. she's stuck with it. She's still, she's hanging in there. Um, she found okay. her niche. And she gained some self-confidence. But anyway, enough about... Enough about the cover art. Maybe John. Probably not Rick. Because he has dark hair, but looks more kindly than Y. Shyster. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like Rick (laughs) is getting a bad rap in this book. He's not able to speak for himself. He doesn't have any defense. You You know what? Like, what's going on? Rick is getting a bad rap in this book, and you're right that it's not totally fair for Rick to never get a chance to really speak for himself. We hear a lot of descriptions of Rick. In fact, since we're talking about it, um, we might as well uh, transition briefly into the part of the podcast where we talk about boys. Oh, 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 a beautiful boys, a beautiful boys. I'm in danger of losing Because Rick is one of the boys that gets objectified by this book. Um, on page seven, uh, we hear him described as the handsome, dark-haired dropout was definitely attractive in a dangerous kind of way, and Jessica had fallen hard for him. Later on in the book, there's a scene where the girls, uh, the popular girls of Sweet Valley High, are speculating about the um, young men, and they're thinking about who might be the best kisser. And so they're they're joking, having a having a laughy conversation. Um, maybe we should do some field research, take a survey. Amy cut in. This is Amy Sutton. Um, of course it is. Uh, take a survey. Amy cut in, laughing. Serious, hands-on research. Lila hooted. Or we could interview Jess. She's dated half the boys in the school, and you've dated the other half. Jessica interrupted. She tapped her cheek thoughtfully. I hate to admit it, but Bruce is pretty good. Believe me. Amy smirked, I know, but so is Tom McKay. 
that'll be interesting later. Anyway, out of bounds, Lila interrupted with a giggle. He's taken. Rolling her eyes, Amy huffed. Well, practically everyone's going out with someone. Jessica hitched her chair closer, her blue-green eyes dancing. As she started to speak, she noticed AJ walking toward her. In a conspiratorial tone, she said, Well, when my cousin Kelly went out with Kirk Anderson... Kirk the jerk, Amy supplied. She grimaced in anticipation. Yeah? Yeah? According to her, he's definitely in the major leagues. You mean according to him, Lila insisted. The girls erupted into shrieks of laughter as AJ pulled out a chair next to Jessica. And um, AJ's like, what are you girls talking about? And Jessica tells him, which I think is a great, and then she tells him that he's a great kisser, but he's not that placated by by that. He does not like this conversation. Interesting. Um, one of the things is definitely in the major leagues. Obviously, the NFL is pretty dominant these days, but back in the 80s, it was still baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the major leagues are kissing as opposed to, like, you know, random other not, not mentioned uh one of the other things that, that is mentioned is that practically everyone's going out with someone, which is interesting because anytime we hear of people as a friend of or a person who previously went out with someone. That's um, true. There's a lot of that like backstory filling in. Jessica was dating so-and-so or there are Winston's at the Dairy Burger with his girlfriend Maria and uh, Sandra Bacon is with Manuel Lopez. Like they're, yeah, they're all. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. I saw the name Manuel. It's like, wow, there's like a, a maybe Hispanic person in California. <laughs> I will admit that I wondered if that was going to jump out to you. Like, just how white is this book? Is it white enough that merely the mention of someone named Manuel Lopez is going to be notable? And and it was. And I was happy to see Manuel back in business. Manuel and Sandra got their own book. And you better believe it was about the fact that Sandra's parents didn't approve of Manuel being uh, a Mexican person. So... Uh, I you say swarthy. <laughs> well, I guess that... No, it was, okay. more, it was, ex- it was more explicit than that. It was, uh, yeah. a, it was absolutely about Manuel's Mexicanness. And now... then Mexicosity. He, like, Mexicosity. <laughs> he basically did not appear in another book uh he's been in the background a couple times so i was happy to see manuel you know having a good time with the rest of the game so so where is this place is it definitely in like urban part of california it's definitely in socal uh because it doesn't really seem very Mm -hmm. much of the norcal kind of uh yeah it's definitely south of los angeles south of los angeles on the beach on the beach. Yes. The the south the southness was a big a big clue that we got in an early super edition where they take a big bike trip up to northern California and one of their first stops is Los Angeles. So they have okay. to be coming from below Los Angeles. The, now it's confusingly called Sweet Valley even though the valley is not usually on the beach, but in this case it's clearly <laughs> a beach. There's town. not too many valleys with beaches. I, I noticed right. that. Because you can't have a mountain on the other side of you to make it a valley if there's a beach there. That's yeah, just topography. The, the geography makes it a bit difficult. Um, <laughs> but, but okay, so so they're, they're south of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and north of Mexico. We're, we're Gotta be. getting warmer. Gotta be north of Mexico. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's got to be something like Newport Beach, Balboa, like. Oh, so definitely OC. I think so. I think so. That's interesting because, you know, they don't talk about Chino Hills, but uh, I started thinking about uh, other people whose names begin with R and are bad boys. Ryan from the OC. <laughs> <laughs> All he needs is a Sandy Cohen in his life. And, and maybe Rick can actually be made better. Maybe uh, this whole uh, more gendered kind of like female uh, trope that some girls can change a guy. Uh, maybe he can be changed. I mean, I believe that it is possible for a person to change. Um, I don't know why it should be the responsibility of a 15 year old girl to change, to change them. But, um, I, I think that maybe I would love to see the future book where Rick is reformed. Um, we have seen other characters change and reform over the course of this series thus far, although some of them have then uh, reverted back to their old ways, uh, Bruce Patman. And uh, it's possible that, you know, Rick will come back again. I don't know what's going to happen next in these books. That's the great thing about it being season six, you all. Like, from here on out, I don't really know what's going to happen other than, like, I know some of the book titles and, like, a little bit of a couple of plots. But for the most part, not sure. Not sure what's coming next. Um, but I do know what comes next in this book, White Lies, because I have read it. We, we've read it. And it's that John uh, is not telling, <laughs> uh, not telling Jennifer anything about his, his uh, guilt. And he's not even, I was really surprised that John didn't even attempt to like press Jennifer on her fictional story about her dad. Like he doesn't, we don't see John say so much as like, well, what is it that you think your dad did? Or like, what is the evidence that has led you to believe that? Like he doesn't question it at all, even though he knows it's not true. He doesn't try to change your way of thinking at all, mm. which I thought was bad, bad form on his part. Like I, I mean, I, I, I thought that he could have at least tried to have her think a little bit about, you know, why is it that you're making these assumptions? Like, why yeah, would your no, dad do that? Like, what would it be in it for him? <laughs> one know? of those sentences from, from chapter eight is just saying, John couldn't make up his mind, which is worse, that Jennifer blamed her father for betraying her or that Jennifer might still be in love with Rick. So I think he's not yet at the point where he's able to broach the, the amount of his involvement um, and the fact that he would be taking some of, of that uh, anger rather than her father. He's guilty because at this point, her father has a cardiac event. Yeah. He's a heart attack. He has like chest pain that he thinks is heartburn. Eventually he's in the hospital. Eventually needs to get a bypass. Um, so we know that this is after the 60s because that's when bypasses became a thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then he... Starts to feel guilty about all of this, but like not guilty enough that he like wants to tell the truth. It's be forced into doing that. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. Mister Mitchell is in the hospital, and uh, Jennifer is still refusing to talk to him, and she won't go see him in the hospital. And I thought it was interesting how around this time John really starts to feel guilty, but it's still like. He can't tell. He can't say anything to her. Like he can't tell her. Like, oh, you should. I don't know. 
like uh, this is where the the him not even trying to like press her on her mode of thinking was was really notable to me like he does like it's basically just i have to tell her the whole truth or else she you know she won't talk to her dad again but he he's still he's like oh well whatever um this is what you're getting at daniel i think because then uh he starts to worry like well what if the she's not talking to her dad even though he's about to go in for surgery what if he dies in surgery and then she never talks to him again she never makes up with him and it's all my fault there we go once you start to personalize the guilt then it like motivates you to think about it but he's still not going to do it like he he, he would not unless he was forced to do anything (laughs) he tells elizabeth about it and elizabeth is like well what if he dies and john says he's not gonna die (laughs) elizabeth is like but what if he does? You don't know that. I mean, it is. I mean, it is, seems unlikely that he would die. But I mean, what do you? Who knows? Not but then die. Al- this is a children's book. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have died. But I was oh, wondering, yeah, like, die. is he going to die? Occasionally, not that often, but occasionally. Okay. Um. So Elizabeth, though, she's like, listen, I was a party to this too. I'm not going to allow this to happen. So if you don't talk to her, I will talk to her. Uh, but then it's funny how Elizabeth sort of removes herself from the confession. <laughs> she makes John, she drives, she drives him. I love that she really like takes the bull by the horn. She's like, I'm going to drive you to Jennifer's house right now. Like literally right the second we're going over there. And she well, does. Well, so she, you're talking about guys. Is John a good guy? Oh, that is a hard question. I think, you know what? I think that would be a great question for us to investigate in their extra drama episode next week because i think it's worth exploring a little bit more deeply but what we can say for now is that or what i can say and i'm curious what you have to say i thought it was interesting how much guilt john was willing to assume for this whole situation because eventually you know he starts to feel guilty like you said that drives him to want to confess the truth and I just don't think this is John's fault. I, I think this is Jennifer's fault. <laughs> Jennifer's the one who decided that her dad was responsible for this based on no evidence at all and was more willing to believe that this, like, kind of scummy dude was innocent and framed than she was willing to believe that, like, all of the – that whatever her dad was telling her was true. That just seems – just but really does Jennifer up. icing out her dad cause him to have a heart attack, though? That's kind of... I, I wonder. I wonder. I, I Hopefully no. not. I wouldn't think so. You're the doctor. You tell me. Uh, yeah. I mean, really stressful situations can be bad for your health. Obviously, there's probably some risk factors as well. And he right. is kind of stressed at work. And they keep yeah, that's what he talking says. about that. Right. And I would um, think that stress couldn't cause a cardiac event alone. You know, like there would have to be something else going on. So I don't think that the heart attack is Jennifer's fault. But I do think that the situation she's gotten herself in with not speaking to him is is totally her fault. It's her decision. She decided not to. She decided that he did something. She made it up fully in her own mind. And then she's punishing for it. It's just, it makes me really mad. Yeah. Well, so, so a couple things that are, so, you know, he, it's the 80s, maybe? Although yeah. it could also be the 70s. No, it's, the, it's, 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 it's definitely yeah. It is the um, 80s when this book was written. The late 80s. Yeah. No, it definitely was written in the 80s. But, like, you know, based on based on the setting, who's to say this is definitely the 80s? 
Oh, the 70s. Like, the names are really off. Uh, The the names might be the thing that uh, kind of confirms it to be the 80s, right? So, Jennifer and Jessica. Jennifer, um, yeah. Yeah, look into it, right? So, Jennifer was um, not a particularly popular, and then it kind of went up top 10 by the 60s. And was number one for every year from 1970 to 1984, <laughs> followed by Jessica's number two. This is something that is very interesting to me, uh, names and name history. Um, I learned this when I read uh, the book Freakonomics, which has a whole chapter about names toward the back of it. And I just think it's the most interesting thing. I I think names, especially given names, are really, really interesting. And yeah, I mean, these Jennifers, this Jennifer would have been born presumably in the... In the 70s, you know, so. Yeah. Jennifer is not a particularly common name anymore, by the way. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it kind of burned bright and then. Uh, well, the th- one thing that's so out. interesting in this Freakonomics article is the way that it shows that names, uh, some popular names make a kind of tour through various uh, levels of like uh, class in terms of like family status or st- and income and, you know, you get a name that maybe started as a boy's name, like Whitney, and uh, becomes a fancy sort of like el- elite sounding uh, name and then kind of becomes more common. And, and it also goes through like spelling changes as it and then when a name becomes really common, sometimes it loses traction in the sort of wealthier or like more rarefied kind of fancy people spheres it's just yeah. interesting i mean i don't want to go too far into this because i'm like i feel like i'm digging a digging a hole for myself in terms of talking sure, about sure. like socioeconomic I mean, situations uh, without nuance but there's, there's probably some socioeconomic things that could be talked about particularly in this book but um it, it, that, <laughs> that was actually that's probably the, the most positive thing to confirm it being at least in the 80s could theoretically be in the 70s based on how little has changed in this place <laughs> um, and you know who you'd be writing the book for um, because like who is the audience of this book like, people who are aspiring to be in high school one day so that they could drop out or are they people who are like actually in high school probably not <laughs> <laughs> they i think it's people that are aspiring to be in high school one day but i don't think that anyone is being encouraged to drop out by this book the dropouts are bad news oh, and, yeah. and, it, and the jennifer situation is you know that's it's very scary that she's gonna run away from home and um oh there was a funny moment let me see if i can find it that i thought it was interesting where jennifer thinks about the fact that she's going to uh run away and she thinks Jennifer gets Kitty Bennett-tized, kind of. Well, say, say more about that. Uh, yeah, so so back uh, two centuries before this, <laughs> uh, taking place in the late 1790s, I guess, Pride and Prejudice, uh, one of the sisters, Kitty Bennett, calls for this guy, uh, Colonel Wickham, who's kind of a dad, probably not the worst of the Jane Austen cads, um, but uh, she... He gets found out, um, and then uh, they, they are able to stop the aspiration for her to run away to Ramsgate, which is the place where you would um, kind of run away to the sea, or possibly to Gretna Green, which is actually a street in Los Angeles, too. But 
is a place across the border. Gretna Green will be very familiar to any Regency romance readers as the place that is often used as a plot device for a quick wedding. Quick wedding in Scotland where the rules are all different. (laughs) Yeah. And then Um, the age of marriage is lower. Yes, that is almost what's going to happen. And so something that I thought was interesting was, this is from Jennifer's perspective earlier on in the book, um, she thinks, it seemed impossible that her parents still treated her like a child, especially when she almost ran away from home the night before. And I was, I just thought that was uh, something that really um, encapsulated Jennifer's immaturity so clearly, that she equates this like very reckless thing that she was about to do with some kind of with maturity with with a, a move of how uh, that was going to assert her independent. I mean, it would have asserted her independence in a, in a way, but it's like running away from home is not something that a mature person can do. If you're actually mature, you just leave. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not running away. Um, a, a quick fact check, just to correct myself, is Lydia Bennett, the younger sister of Kitty, who was also 15 in, in the book, by the way, uh, who, who wanted ah. to run away from home and uh, you know elope with this guy. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is uh, per- perhaps an inspiration <laughs> for, for this book, White Lies, uh, book number 52 of the Sweet Valley High series. Well, we're almost here in the home stretch of the story. The big thing that kind of pushes things to the edge is that when John goes to apologize to Jennifer, or basically to tell her the truth, I don't know, it's kind of an apology because he says how sorry he is, but he's really just telling what's up. And Jennifer is hurt that he hasn't told her sooner. They rush over to the hospital where her dad is supposed to be going into surgery soon. And it turns out uh, that something different has happened. And this is where I was worried for a second that maybe he had died. But here's what happens. Jennifer whirled around to confront him. You couldn't have told me an hour ago, could you? She said in a choked, bitter voice. A cold panic swept over John. He couldn't say anything. Elizabeth came forward, an anxious look in her eyes. Hello, Mrs. Mitchell. I'm Elizabeth Wakefield. Is Mr. Mitchell all right? Jennifer's mother drew a deep breath. He took a turn for the worse this afternoon. They moved up the bypass surgery. He's being operated on now. The words sent a shock through John, and he turned to look helplessly at Jennifer. If her father didn't pull through, Jennifer would never have the chance to apologize, and it would be his fault. So, more of that John blame. Again, I think I disagree somewhat with that sentiment, but John feels it, so he definitely should yeah, have I mean, behaved differently. Just to, just to maybe stir the pot for your subsequent... Um, investigation of the guys having the capacity for shame in response to it makes you not quite as bad as if you did not have that. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, so from here, it's kind of like John is frozen out of Jennifer's life a little bit, and there's really no way for them to find out what happened to Mr. Mitchell without, you know, asking the Mitchells and they never seem to be home. Luckily, enter Ned Wakefield, who is famously a lawyer, and he knows the firm that Mr. Mitchell works for. So he's going to find out um, if Mr. Mitchell made it through the surgery. Oh, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to talk a little bit about um, patient privacy protection, which is, you know, an interesting topic. <laughs> um, but this is, since this is the eighties, it's definitely before um, this was codified a little bit harder, but 
there's this thing called HIPAA. It's a, it's a law that passed in the mid-90s. But official policy, um, there's strong federal penalties for disclosing patient information, like patient's name, where they are in the hospital. <laughs> and this is kind of like um, played off in the book, which is before this law was passed, as a hospital's policy that, you know, we won't just tell you where a person is in the hospital, although 538, you can't go up there. It's in the ICU. They like just tell them what room Brian Mitchell is in, <laughs> even though <laughs> they don't have any relationship to the patient. Um, but, you know, like they, they, they kind of, um, even admitting that there was a surgery is a violation of uh, patients' secrecy slash privacy rights. That's really interesting. But you said that HIPAA wasn't passed until after 1989? No, HIPAA was passed um, as an end run at the end of uh, the kind of flamed out Hillary Clinton, Clinton care. Well, I was honestly, I was excited when this book ended up taking a turn into the hospital because I was like, oh, I have a doctor coming on the show. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be it's actually related somehow. Cool. Always good when it takes a turn for the worst. Actually, yeah. the other thing that I was thinking about um from a medical perspective is, uh, yeah, so the fact that there is bypass surgery uh, that was pioneered in the early 60s and then became popular throughout the 60s. What became a little bit more popular and is now more dominant is interventional cardiology, which is basically like going to a catheterization suite where they can kind of snake uh, wires up and see which vessels are open and closed. The way this guy, Mr. Mitchell, comes into the hospital and is like weirdly admitted for like a week is uh, a little bit longer than we would typically um, keep a patient who had his level of problem. Although it, it's not unheard of. like, And hopefully he would get discharged <laughs> in fewer days than like, a, you know, kind of agonizing and anxiety inducing like week. Although it's better for the drama of... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is where it starts to get a little bit like question marky about how long, how much time has passed. But eventually, I, I think that Ned is not calling the hospital, Ned, Mr. Wakefield. He's calling the law firm to find out, to ask about about Mr. Mitchell and, you know, finds out that he, you know, has survived <laughs> the surgery. And so Elizabeth uh, convinces John that, like, as soon as possible would probably be a good time for, for him to go try to explain himself a little more to Jennifer uh, now that the the worst has been uh, averted. And so did they that, go to the... Did that go actually ahead. jibe with what you were thinking? Is like... No. No. <laughs> this this girl who like now completely thinks differently of you is going to change her mind and it's going to change her mind because like her dad is not necessarily going to die this is the right time to swoop in and yeah, try to the, get back the only reason i actually paused and thought about it like do i agree with elizabeth here and the only reason that i could kind of see what she's getting at is that sometimes I feel like the longer, you know, for every day that he lets pass without talking to Jennifer, there's always the possibility that Jennifer, who is uh, prone to making up stories about reality, comes up with her own version of events in her head that she believes is true. So it's just more time that she's spending potentially thinking about what she thinks might have happened. Um, without hearing from John. So that's the one thing, you know, it's like okay. the sooner, the better, uh, 
that he explains himself. And then even if she doesn't forgive him, at least she'll have his side of things to be mulling over rather than this like fiction that she is creating. We know she has an active imagination. Uh, this Jennifer Mitchell. That's my so, perspective. So better than the retrograde notion that in her like fragile emotional hysteria, she would be more open to <laughs> being convinced. Of, which like, that yeah, might be no. what Elizabeth was getting that at too. Like I suppose more eighteen eighties way to tell what's going on. <laughs> well, and Elizabeth engages in a little bit more uh, white lies here uh, before the book is over. I was thinking about the title and like the main white lie is the white you know John's I guess white lie of. A lie of omission is really what it is by not correcting Jennifer's supposition about her father. But there's a there's a much more of a white lie that happens at the end of the book, which is that Elizabeth is like, she's going to go talk to Jennifer. John has, has like so chickened out that he's just going to sit in the car in the parking lot. Well, Elizabeth used to be a candy striper at Fowler Memorial Hospital. So she goes and remembers that flowers can be purchased and she <laughs> she buys the flowers and she writes a note from John in the card. She hasn't asked or told John about this. She just makes up a note that's like, well, I can find it and read it. Let's see here. Love John. <laughs> Not a command. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that's how it ends. <laughs> it does end. Love John. Uh, and... All right, let's see. She comes in. The card. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell and Jennifer, I wish you all the best, and my thoughts are with you. I hope you'll always think of me as your friend. Of John Pfeiffer. Well, there you John go. Pfeiffer, friend of Dr. Uh, sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell. And yeah, also it's, Jennifer. <laughs> it's very, it is very just like friendly. I hope you'll always think of me as a friend. And Elizabeth basically forces these flowers on Jennifer, who has an emotional reaction to receiving them, almost throws them away. But Elizabeth is like, please don't, please read the card. And it is actually the thing that kind of clinches it. So the book would suggest because Jennifer's like looking down at this <coughs> card while she sits on the couch and she's talking things through with Elizabeth, who despite Elizabeth's misgivings during this book about being the person who's always relied on for advice. And is she actually good at giving advice or not? You know, here she has, she has a lot of little private smiles with herself in this book about what a good job she does with like solving people's problems. So is, she, is there a little barely, bit of Emma in Elizabeth? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that Emma is more of a Jessica, honestly, but um, uh, Jane Austen's Emma gladiators. We're talking about Jane Austen again. You probably knew that. But uh, yeah, I think that while Emma is more of a Jessica at heart, this is a very Emma-ish characteristic of Elizabeth's. She is, you know, just stepping out like in order to save the day here. It's a little bit of a meddler, you know? Mm -hmm. she is yeah she's meddling but it worked so good for her <laughs> she'll never learn her lesson she'll continue to meddle and i don't know if john and jennifer are going to be like an item now but jennifer has forgotten what rick's face looks like yeah yeah and uh she realizes how wrong she was and also how it was pretty silly of her to just refuse to acknowledge anything about what kind of guy Rick was, despite all the evidence. I'm, I'm so confused because, like, it, it almost seems like White Lies is the uh, 
unlikely story of how John was able to get out of the friend zone and also basically put his rival in jail. <laughs> it does not seem like a very nice guy thing. Well, that sounds like a great segue into um, our our extra drama episode, which we'll talk about next week. But before we close out this episode, um, I have to ask you, Daniel, are you a Jessica or an Elizabeth? Um, probably more of an Elizabeth, although we don't really see uh, the version of Elizabeth that's like actually invested in doing anything with commitment like you know she does not write any of her um column she does not even practice the recorder <laughs> she just kind of like squeaks and then oh yeah gladiators the recorder <laughs> came back in this book she practices yeah. the recorder you know, again flute solos and i was like really baroque flute interesting yeah. also plays the recorder but not particularly well or or longer do than you a minute. play the recorder have you ever tried I your hand at the, the recorder. recorder okay but there was definitely a trend because recorders can be made cheap plastic yeah. to but get can you blame me for thinking that maybe you might have played the recorder i don't know i mean i think i i probably um i think there probably was some recorder exposure in third grade that, that okay. was the thing that's that was as far done. as it goes i don't right. think that recorders were a thing that people would do in high school like that's where that's where the, the dripness of elizabeth starts to come out like, it's oh, definitely man. maybe the i i think that it has a strong candidate for being the dorkiest thing about Elizabeth, this recorder plot line. Very, very strong possibility that that is the nerdiest thing about this uh, character who's nerdy in many ways. And do I own a recorder? I do. I do. <laughs> so I'm an Elizabeth. Well, we'll talk more about John in next week's episode. But for now, it, all that remains is for me to say, Daniel, thank you so much for reading this book. And thank you for being my guest. Uh, and Gladiators, thank you for listening. Uh, tell a friend about Sweet Valley Diaries. And remember that you can follow along with the show on Instagram at Sweet Valley Diaries or on Twitter at Sweet Valley, where you can send me an email, sweetvalleydiaries at me.com. Do you have anything else you want to say before we close out, Daniel? Yeah, I mean... I'm just interested in finding out what happens with this tennis situation at the end of the book. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, we can get into that in the extra drama as well. So tune in next week, everybody, to find out about some tennis stuff and also more about John Pfeiffer. And until then, remember just not to make up stories about your parents based on very little evidence. I just think it's just never a good idea. Okay. Bye. Wow, 64 Fender Stratocast in classic white with triple single coil pickups and a whammy ball. Pre-CBS Fender corporate buyout. I'd raise the bridge, file down the nut, and take the buzz out the low E. God, I love this woman.